At the Eiffel Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton equaled Michael Schumacher's record of 91 Formula One race wins, and nobody doubts he will set an outright record before the end of the season, most likely in the upcoming Portuguese Grand Prix. So today, we're talking drivers with Gary Anderson primarily about Hamilton and Schumacher, but also with a few other questions on the topic thrown in. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me is the man whose name is on the door of the podcast, Gary Anderson. Gary, hello. 91 wins is quite something, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty special, isn't it? You know, and it's not far away from the hundred as well, which I'm I'm pretty sure will be a matter of the next couple of years. Um, Hamilton will achieve. It's uh, I think it might be depressing for a few others. I think whenever we saw the domination of, of Michael Schumacher at Ferrari, we all thought that was you know that was exceptional, um, and that it probably would never happen again. But here it is, and it's you know it's not that long since since that domination. So at the end of the day it doesn't leave much room for others to really sort of get on that on that wagon i suppose you might call it so um yeah pretty good pretty good effort um and as i say I, I can see it going over 100 by the end of next year no problem i think pretty good effort that's that's an understatement but yeah it's a, a fantastic achievement isn't it so as usual we've got some listener questions you can fling your questions towards gary on twitter or on at gary anderson f1 we've asked for questions about hamilton schumacher and just drivers in general as well so let, let's work through Hamilton and Schumacher first. And of course, we should say Michael Schumacher. Gary was, of course, technical director for Michael Schumacher's debut. You can listen to a story all about that on our sister podcast, Bring Back V10s, which tells a story not just of that weekend, but also all the shenanigans around the contracts, etc. But uh, first question comes from Nigel the Legend on Twitter, who says, could you tell us why these two are able to extract so much performance out of the car compared to their teammates? Well, I don't think it's just those two. I mean, obviously, you look at um, Max Verstappen, for example. He's he does a pretty good job relative to any teammate that's thrown at him. So I think at the end of the day, it's uh, you know, it's the talent. Talent always rises to the top, um, and these guys, you know, Lewis Hamilton, Michael Schumacher, Max Verstappen, and various other drivers through the era have all you know risen to the top, and they're at the top of their game for one reason because they are very very talented very, very focused and um, totally committed to what they're doing. You know, they just basically on a, their job is to do what they're doing. They're not there for fun. You know, in my days when I first started racing, um, you know, I remember talking to Wilson Fittipaldi about why he was a racing driver and he said it was better than working. You know, he didn't really have a total ambition. I mean, his brother Emerson was a very successful driver, won two world championships, but at the end of the day, Wilson was there, you know, a bit like Ralph Schumacher was to Michael. He was there because he was the brother. He was pretty decent, you know, but he, he didn't have that 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 real commitment, that real focus that said, I, I've got to win this thing. If I'm doing it, I want to be the best at doing it. And I think you can see that Michael Schumacher, uh, Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, and as I say, many others, if they were given the right opportunity, would be the same. Just they know why they're there and they're really committed to it. And they're not just, you know, not just passengers. Of course, Wilson Fittipaldi must have been your first Formula One driver that you worked with with uh, uh, with Brabham, I guess, in '73. Uh, yeah, he was. I I did a little bit with uh, Andrea De Adamich first of all, uh, and then it was Wilson Fittipaldi. And um, yeah, it was you know a totally different era, to be honest. 1973, um, you know, things were completely different. Um, but we'll get into that probably with some of the other questions uh, going through the the years. Um, but as I say, you know, for a racing driver on a Sunday afternoon, sitting on the grid in that car you really need to know why you're there. And Michael Lewis, as I say, Max Verstappen, and many others um, know why they're there. 
I'm very pleased that just three minutes into this podcast, we've managed to somehow get onto Wilson Fittipaldi and Andrea Adamic. That's an impressive uh, achievement. So, um, there's another question, which is tell us everything about the driving styles of Lewis and Michael. I wish I really knew, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. Um, the one thing that I would say, knowing a little bit more about Michael, because I was more directly involved at the time with a team when Michael was driving it, I wasn't within the Ferrari team, but I was outside of it, so I, we were competitors as such. And the one thing I would say about him was that he he would ad- adapt to the car very, very quickly. And in some cases, even too quickly. And, and I think Eddie Irvine would be the one that would tell you that he'd, he'd adapt too quickly. Um because Eddie would, I remember Emila basically coming down into uh, Ravazza 1, Ravazza 2, which is a downhill sort of left-hand corner. Um, and this is way back, I mean, when, when Eddie was driving there, I don't know what year that would have been, 96, 97, I suppose. And um, Michael came into Ravazza 1, breaking downhill, rear steps out quite dramatically, carries on. Eddie comes down, the rear steps out quite dramatically, carries on. Michael comes down, second lap. Rear steps out a little bit, carries on. Eddie comes down, the rear steps out dramatically, carries on. Lap three, he didn't see the car stepping out at all with Michael. Eddie, the rear steps out quite dramatically. So Michael would adapt to the car, and then he'd try to um, you know, make the car go faster from there. Eddie wouldn't adapt to the car. This is the way I want to drive. I've got to try and get there with the car somehow. So you know, every car's got its characteristics. Every driver's got what it wants from the car. Um, and... Michael was good to flow with the car, basically, as opposed to make, trying to make the car suit his driving style. And again, I remember when I was doing the BBC stuff um, at Monaco, um, watching, coming into the chicane out of the tunnel, um, watching very closely there as I used to do my trackside sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, you'd watch um, Rosberg through there, and he was always through that chicane. The car was always on the move, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But he was reacting to it. He was he was trying to react to those situations, whereas Lewis was just leaving the car alone, knowing that it would sort of fix itself. So I think Lewis is much Lewis's ability is to be relaxed in the car, knowing some of these little situations that arrive from the car. You, you don't have to do anything about it. The car will fix itself. Obviously, within the car, he's he's working hard, but you don't see it. You don't see that happening at all. So I think it, it really is genuinely about the belief in the field through your underpants. It's letting you know about how, how the car is going. And I think they're just, you know, they're very good at, at, at feeling that. And you can see it with Lewis in the wet conditions, you know, or damp conditions or when grip's changing. He can pick up that sensation much, much better than anybody else. And I think... Austria 2 was a typical example of the wet. I mean, he was on pole by, what, one and a half seconds or something. Um, and that's just through the fact that he's got that feel for the car, but he also allows the car to do its job. He doesn't try to influence the car too much other than tell it he wants to turn right or tell it he wants it to turn left. So it's just an, an inner talent, an inner feeling, an inner sensation, and both of them are very, very good at it, as are a huge amount of others, to be honest, you know, but they just haven't been able to prove it yet. I should say that question came from Richard Orcock, which I couldn't say initially because I'd accidentally uh, deleted it. Uh, next question comes from Aaron Smith, who says, how bad were those 1996 to 98 Ferraris that Michael made title challengers? Well, he couldn't quite make the 96 car a title challenger, but he did win in what was effectively a giant armchair early on, which was quite impressive. And why did Lewis not achieve much in 2009 to 13? So I guess these are questions about the what might be called the fallow years for these drivers, which are still very successful. 
Well, again, yeah, just Aaron, just going back to, to that last answer to that last question. You know, if you look at some of the '96 stuff with Michael, we we actually called the Ferrari that year a skip um, because it, that's what it looked like the cockpit arrangement. And you'll see Michael driving with his head hanging out the side of the car a bit because just to get air down the airbox. And that and that is a part of adapting to what the car's problems are. You know, they couldn't change that. Ross Braun was very upset the fact that uh, both Jordan and um, and Williams found a solution to the new headrest regulations and they missed it. So, you know, whenever you they had a bad car, they just were Michael was just able to buy into it and adapt quite a lot to it. He had to do that all his career, I believe, you know. Again, even whenever he drove for us way back in 91, the car we had them had sort of a bit of a mechanical understeer, low-speed corners, and, you know, he said about it many times during the Friday, and uh, we said, look, we can, you know, we can address it a little bit, but it won't be faster because it makes the car more nervous on the corner entry in the fast corners. And uh, he said, can we have a try? So we did a little bit of a setup change, went out, come straight back in again, and never even did a time lap and said, no, you're right, leave it alone, I'll, I'll, I'll sort that out. Um, so he was very, very good at adapting to it. Whereas, you know, we move on there from 96 to 98 to 2009 to 2013 for, for Lewis. And that, that's a huge time span. Things have cha- had changed quite dramatically during that time span. And, um, the, you know, the McLaren at that point in time and, and the um, first year with, with Mercedes, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that great a car. I think you said the Mercedes in 2013 was was pretty decent and there was a few pole positions but you see it have its rear tires quite dramatically so you know gone with the days of of actually just adapting to the car and, and dragging the best out of it possible you data engineers the whole depth of knowledge had gone on so much in that in that one decade that it had changed how they how you could adapt to the car and also, you can argue in that period, I think the main problem there in many ways was for, for three of those four years for Hamilton was uh, was McLaren not quite having everything together. They had a really quick car in 2012, but operationally not so strong. And actually, connected to the question that's coming up, 2009 to 2013, even within that stretch, you're going from refueling cars on Bridgestones to full race fuel loads on Pirellis over over that span. So this is connected to the, the, this question from Calixto Erico, who says, Hamilton was once accused of lacking tyre management. Is it possible to pinpoint when and how he overcame this, or was it always a myth? And just to tee that one off, I'd say that actually that was a question of demand because the tyre management became, you know, it's always been a factor, but it became so critical in the Pirelli era, didn't it? Yeah, it, it did, to be honest. Pirelli, you know, the, the tyre management, is an overall, it's an overall management, and it's got... It's got many different sort of areas that you need to manage, whereas with the Bridgestone tyres, although they still needed management, their biggest problem would be front tyre graining. And you normally see it in the race, sort of, the the graining would start lap four, lap five. But if you just didn't abuse it too much, by lap nine or ten, it was cleaning up. So you could get through it, and and you just had to make sure you addressed it it when it was there, and didn't make the front scrub too much while it cleaned up. Normally it would clean up, and away you go again. So it was a, a sort of different discipline. But, you know, even way back, again, you know, good year in the 70s, at any point in time in my career, you had to you had to keep an eye on managing tyres. I remember Carlos Reutem in Austria, you know, when Austria was a, a real circuit, coming around those big, fast right-hand corners. Um, I remember him, you know, leading the race with a blistered left front. And it, so it was still there. You just had to be careful of it. I went there with my Anson F3 car in 1983, I think, 
uh, with Yokohama tires on it, and we blistered the left front. So nothing changes, no matter the formula or the the tire. There's always some form of tire management. And I think Lewis, you know, he was he, he's always been a driver that drives to win. He's never been a driver that's comfortable going around. Um, cruising around just to get a good result out of it. So he would always be pushing as hard as he can. So everything would be on the limit. And I think if that's true, then tyre management comes from a you know, a lot of experience. Uh, it's different, let's say, for a driver like Sergio Perez, where he's trying to manage the tyres to get the best result out of it possible. Lewis is trying to win the race, and within that, managing the tyres. It's sort of like backwards, I suppose you might call it. But I think he's come on it pretty well. He... It's still problems, you know, you look at Silverstone, the races this year, there's still tyre problems pop up. But normally if Lewis has tyre problems, they're tyre problems for, for everybody. Um, so at the end of the day, a myth, no, but a learning curve, yes, I suppose you might call it. The next question comes from David Ferns. He says, Schumacher is widely considered to have changed what it took to be an F1 driver in terms of fitness, approach, dedication. Other than 91 wins and seven world championships, that's Schumacher's legacy. And has Hamilton impacted F1 in a similar way? And if not, what will Hamilton's legacy be? Legacy questions are tricky, aren't they, while you're still kind of, it, while, while the driver's still active? Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult. I mean, Schumacher um, was always a driver, it was a fit driver. But I, I say the most important thing to me was he was a mentally, he's the one that brought mental fitness to, to Formula One more than just physical fitness. Um, you know, it, it takes two things. He, he had, I think there was a lot of capacity left within the car to cope with situations. You know, at any time, whenever Ross Braun said, look, we're converting this from a two-stop to a four-stop race or, a, or you know, we've made a mistake or something's happened, basically, you wouldn't hear Michael on the radio complaining and moaning about it. You would just see the lap times change. And he just, a bit like, like Danny Ricardo. The last race, not the last race, race before when he got a five second penalty, you know, he just bought into it. Said, "Oh, okay, I'll just have to drive faster." He knew he made a mistake. They were in this situation. What you do? Do you moan about it and groan about it, or do you just get the foot down and try and try and make up for it? And and Danny's that type of guy. He just, you know, basically tried to make up that gap. We did hear Lewis complaining and moaning about it, but at the time Michael was driving, he was, you know, dedicated to success again, like like Lewis is now. And lots of things at that time was, was having refueling and, you know, the tyre competition between Michelin and, and Bridgestone, all that sort of stuff meant you were on different strategies. And you had to see the big picture. And the big picture is very difficult to see when you're sitting in a racing car, driving it flat out. You have to allow somebody else to see the big picture and, and instruct you on what you need to do. And Michael was very good, I think, at buying into that. A lot of his success come from, you know, running fourth, fifth or whatever, on lap 20, knowing that it was on a different strategy, but knowing that that tenth of a second every lap at that point was actually going to be vitally important when it comes to lap 58, 59 or 60 of the race. So he always would just give 100% during that period. Lewis probably does the same thing. Um, but legacy is a difficult thing because times change, you know. As I say, it's, it's not Michael left Ferrari, which was his main competition in 2006. And... Um, Lewis Hamilton drove his first Grand Prix in 2007. So it is, you know, it's a different, a different legacy, I think. The cars have changed dramatically. Uh, I don't think you can really compare it other than just the actual facts. You know, Michael Schumacher 
Um, had 68 pole positions, I think, at 306 starts. That's 22%. Um, and Lewis Hamilton has 95 pole positions out of 261 starts. That's 36%. And race wins, obviously, they both have 91. Um, but Lewis's, Lewis's percentage is 34.9, and Michael Schumacher's is 29.7. Different era, different thing, but, you know, they've both been very successful. Next question comes from Ginny via Twitter, who says, does dirty driving pay off in the long run? Schumacher tends to be seen as dirtier than Hamilton. Rosberg did some dodgy stuff uh, occasionally. Uh, Is there any advantage in being a clean driver, i.e. less damage to cars, therefore cheaper for teams? Uh, I guess it's it's, it's an interesting question, though, isn't it? Because I think, actually, legacy-wise, I think Hamilton's attempt to kind of do things on track the right way is part of that legacy, but that's just a secondary thought uh, that occurs to me. No, I, I think you're right there, Ed. Um, I think the thing is that um, just if you take the fact that you know Jensen Button says Lewis is the is the tidy or the neatest driver he drove with, you know the, the best to drive with, he'd be clean and tidy. And I think you can see that. I think I think it is important. I don't think the cheaper for teams bet really comes into it because the the thing is that, that racing and driving. And winning is all about the points. Um, you can't score good points with a damaged car. So if you're going to be an aggressive driver and bang wheels with somebody, you can stand the risk of, of suffering the consequences just as much as everybody else. I think, you know, if you look at Lewis's career, he's never been that type of driver anyway. Um, he's got any some tight shaves, but he's, been, it, it, he's always given, or 99.9% of the time, is given racing room for anybody he's racing with. And I think that's you know that's his legacy, to be honest. You can be a world champion. You can win more Grand Prix than anybody else. And the only way you can win them is if you've got four wheels in your wagon as such. You know, you can't if you don't. So he's that that legacy is there that for the young guys coming up, yes, you can do it keeping it clean. You can be hard, you can be strong, you can be forceful but you must give racing room to to everybody around you otherwise you can suffer the consequences just as much michael i think he would see the red mist too often but probably was the best way of putting it um he at the moment he never did he never well i don't think he ever did it um when he was putting his championships at risk but he might do it for the odd race Uh, you know at the end of the day it's just about winning more races than other people or scoring more points than other people. And if you're in that position, there's a very good chance you can be, you can see the red mist and, and, and be a bit too aggressive. You know, the last race of the season or a couple of races before the end of the season, if you're in the position to win a championship, then you can be different. Um, so you might get a bit more wheel bangy. But uh, I think Lewis could be complimented for his, his tidy and clean driving. Uh, Andy Burtonshaw in with the... Uh... The, the key question here, which of the two would you rather have in your car if you're in charge of a team now? Without a question, Michael Schumacher. And the, and the reason is is really what I said earlier. You know, <clears throat> give Michael what he's got on a Sunday afternoon at two o'clock and he will get on with it in the best way possible. Adverse conditions pop up for whatever reason. You can still rely on him really getting on with it and not whinging down the radio. I hate whinging down the radio. And we hear far too much of that. Times have changed, you know. When I started racing way back in, in the early 70s, you know, you had to plug in the old Pelter radio system um, to, to contact the driver when he came into the pits. You didn't have communication. 
So I've gone through that era of no communication to the driver, waving your hands at him, waving anything at him you got, um, to basically now it's every lap somebody's having a moan about something. I hate that part. That's just stupid in my book. So for that reason only, I would have Michael Schumacher in the car and the fact he was a very talented driver, but he was a driver that, that was a driver who just really got on with that job. There's a question here from Bill Carson, who says, what credit goes to the car and what credit to the driver? For example, says, while Schumacher had a brilliant car, it wasn't always the fastest, for example, 2000, 2001, 2003. So, yeah, how do you, how do you separate the car and driver? You can't really, can you? Yeah, you can't really, to be honest. As I said earlier, I think, you know, the cream rises to the top. So the, the, the best drivers normally will get themselves into the best team. Um, and... A lot of teams will overlook the fact that if, if the driver personality-wise is good or bad, still the talent on a Sunday afternoon is what counts. Um, but, you know, M Michael had a brilliant car in a few years, but when he didn't have a brilliant car, he definitely did a very good job. So it would be, it's difficult to compare it. I'm not sure what, uh, what Lewis would be like if he was in a, I don't know, a Renault now or a, a, you know, a, a racing point, or a whatever, McLaren. Um, I would doubt very much that he would win as races. He'd probably win some because he would drive the team on that bit more, maybe. Um, very, very hard to say, but I think at that era, and again, it's a long time ago, it's now on 20 years ago, times have changed dramatically, but I think, again, I'd say that Michael would always wring the car's neck, no matter what he had um, on the day. And that might just be an asset. So I suppose I'd, I'd point it to the fact that I think Michael, driver-wise, won, won not, in the, not in quite the best car. Pretty close to the best car, but not quite the best car. And Lewis is winning in the best car. But he's part of making that car into the best car. So, you know, it's all part of a package. A question from someone called The Dirty Side of the Grid on Twitter who asks about the off-track uh, stuff like relationships with engineers, the human link to the machine. How fundamental is that to these two all-time greats? Or is it all about how good they are on track? Um, genuinely, it's all about how good they are on track. But more importantly, it's it's about how good that a driver... I've always found, you know, a driver will want something. He'll want less understeer or less oversteer or, or you know, um, more stable under braking. Or, you know, he'll want something. There's always got to be something that a driver wants. Otherwise, he's not trying hard enough. Um and when you achieve that for a driver, it has to be about giving you back. So he needs to give you back some lap time, I suppose, is the best thing. I don't like a driver to come in and say, oh, yeah, that feels a lot better, but you're a tenth of a second slower. Oh, yeah, well, I didn't just push as hard, or, you know, I, I will be quicker when I need to be, or whatever. You know, I never like that bit. If you do a change in the car and it's better, you go faster. If you do a change in the car and it's slower, you go slower. And that's what the driver's level needs to be at. You know, nowadays, you don't have to do the lap faster. There's just so much data that you can gather. You know, one little mistake on a lap can um, can cost you. But again, the question then you'd ask the driver is, why did you make that one little mistake? And did the changes you put onto the car lead to that little mistake? So you have to dig very, very deep before you you end up getting it. And that's the relationship between the engineer. But it's, it is all about giving you the engineer back that response to a change um, from driving on the track. 
Uh, next up, we got a question from at my spare account on Twitter, who says they're fascinated by the difference between drivers who know how and why they're fast. The examples given are Alan Prost and Michael Schumacher, and those that don't. The example there is John Lacey. Can you ever really turn one into the other, and can the latter be successful anymore? It suggests that with today's telemetry, you think so. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because it sounds a bit stupid to say drivers understand why they're fast or not, but there's an essential truth to that, isn't there? Yeah, there is a lot of truth to it, to be honest. I mean, I remember Ayrton Senna once commenting in one of his um, his documentaries or whatever it was about the fact that you needed to recognise where you were fast and where you weren't fast and try to improve where you're not fast um, and leave alone where you are fast. Because a lot of drivers just go at each lap as a blur and you'll see them make mistakes where they, you know, where they had it well, they had it sort of sorted out before they make mistakes because they're trying to go faster than, than possible. So, yes, having all the data now is good because you can compare with your teammate. Um, you can do your own comparisons as to whether you picked up speed in which corner. But it is about driving each corner as an event and not a lap as an event. You know, whenever I look back to, let's say, Barrichello and Irvine together teamed up, Barrichello would drive the car fingertips. Uh Eddie would be white-knuckling it, you know. If you go out for a lap in a road car with them, you wouldn't believe these two were more or less doing the same lap times in, in, a, in a racing car because the driving style was so much different. And it just, it's just difficult to sort of really sort of identify how, what you need to feel. I think Barrichello was much better at trying to improve his lap time. Eddie was one of the ones that would just drive the whole lap and try to go faster. Again, they were both able to do the same job, both very talented drivers, but just such a different approach to it all. So I don't think, you know, Alicia ever learned the fact that, you know, he had good teammates, he had people he should have learned from, but he, he never learned that. And I think it's inherent, basically. Once you've got it, that's your way of attacking it. And um, if you ever go to a go-kart track, and a go-kart track, I mean, that's the thing about it. You, you know, you're driving around there and you're always making mistakes at different corners. And you shouldn't do that. You should just try to improve the corners where you're not so good at. And I think, you know, whenever we look at the, the Prost, the Schumacher, the Senna, the, the Hamilton, you know, the Jackie Stewart, the Jim Clark, they were all just very good at optimising their performance around a whole lap and not just driving a lap as a blur and trying to go faster. Uh, next up, a question about what might be called the forgotten man at the moment from Jamie Watson, who says, where does Fernando Alonso rank in terms of ability? Is it purely his career moves at the wrong time that have let him down? Fernando Alonso, of course, is back in an F1 car this week uh, in preparation for his return with uh, what will be called Alpine next year. Yeah, I mean, Fernando's a very difficult one to assess. I mean, obviously, when he when he had his success, um, it was a good success. Um, and it was at the right time for everything. Everything sort of knitted together. But he has made some career moves that weren't were questionable. But then, you know, Michael Schumacher moving to Ferrari was a questionable move, but he, he did a good job there. Lewis Hamilton moving to Mercedes was questionable, but he did a good job there. So, you know, when is the, when is the right time to do something? Who knows? It depends. But it also depends on whether you adapt to the situation that you're in there or you try to... Um, rebel against the situation so I think Fernando's always had this bit of a if it's not going right a bit of a rebellion talent wise just going back to that he obviously has got the talent and I'd love I'd love to I'd love to see next year whenever he gets in there if the Renault keeps on making the improvements as it is now it is probably along with 
um, Racing Point and McLaren, you know, the third best team at this point in time. Ferrari are coming back a little bit, I think. I'm not quite sure why, but they look as though they are. Um, but it's getting in a car that should basically be able to challenge for it, give a hard time to that top three, not to win races necessarily, but potentially, you know, to to be in the top six, top four quite often, and the odd trip to the podium. So we'll see how how well he handles that really, because he's not getting into a race winning car by any means, and that's about the mentality then to handle that and try and live through it and build a team to be a race winning car. It's going to be a bit tricky 2001 to 2002 with the regulation change because it's not as though you're building on what you know. It's actually a change of direction completely. Somebody will get that right and somebody will get that wrong. Could be Renault, who knows? But somebody will get it right and somebody will get it wrong. So you could be on the on the good end of that or the bad end without really doing anything different. A question now from Martin Satima, who talks about a driver who you've mentioned a few times. He says, what makes Max Verstappen crush his teammate with regards to driving style and his feedback and understanding of the engineering team side is really performing well this year? He's certainly right, Max is performing well this year. Uh, what what do you think makes him so good? Again, just the, the, the actual fact that he is there to be a winner. Um, he knows that. Um, it's a very important thing. You know, when you go back to, to Jos Verstappen, his dad, Jos was... A very competent driver, but again, a bit like um, some of the others, Alessia, that we were talking about earlier, didn't quite know why he was fast. And, and he also would be one of the guys that would spear off the road far too often because he was trying to go faster in some places than than, than he could. Other places he wasn't as fast. So he, he was one of the drivers that just drove every lap as a blur. And and Max isn't like that. Again, I have to pat him on the back for, for keeping his head through all this turmoil he's gone through. I mean, we all know, they know, that they've never started the season. In the last three, three, four years, I think it might be, they never started the season strongly enough to actually sort of be on the tail of the, the Mercedes. You don't have to start beating them, but you have to be nipping in there all the time, and they've never done that. Um, so for him to keep his head up during all that period um, has been tough. But he, I think he's, you know, he's gone through all that stuff. He's still pretty young, although you know, with every year now he's getting older. So... It needs to have a championship-challenging car pretty soon, or I think his head will go down a little bit. Um, but he's, you know, he, he does. It's his driving style. He adapts to the car very, very well. Like as I said about Michael and at Emila and to Rivazza one, you know, he adapted to the car. He didn't just drive the car the, the way it was. Whereas I think his other his teammates, the car has a you know a characteristic, and they don't adapt to it. They just get bitten by it, I suppose you might call it. So he adapts to it very well and he has a good working relationship with his engineer and he has a winning mentality knowing that he he, he can do it. Give me the tools and I will I will drag a, a race result out of this. And and that's you know, there's a limited amount of people that really have that and he's one of them. A nice philosophical and broad question here from Carl Oakes. He says, can a God-given talent overcome technical brilliance? A very difficult one to answer that, Ed. It's... it's Technical brilliance, I think, in a car, I think you would say Heinz Harald Frensen was one of the drivers who always wanted to engineer the car from the driver's seat. Um, whereas other drivers would just give, tell you what's going on and go and drive the car. You need to be very talented to do either. But the problem is that the technical brilliance within the car, trying to engineer the car, can definitely confuse the old brain cells. You know, you need to leave that up to the people who 
are involved with the, the, the general specification of the car because it's a big picture. It's not just about one thing. You know, I remember whenever I think Frenson drove for Arrows coming in and, and telling the team they needed to change the rear suspension geometry. You know, he, his feeling was that he needed a different geometry in the rear of the car. Well, I can't do that for tomorrow. And if that if that sort of gets into your brain until that happens, you're not going to like it at all. So you have to just, the talent has to come out. But you're a racing driver, you have to be a talented racing driver. And the rest of the sort of operation needs to be talented people in those areas and allow them all to work together. Just you give the information of what the car feels like and why and let the, the technical people get on with the, the, the brilliance side of it or the building of the car. Because the aerodynamics, the mechanical system, all has to work as one together. It's not just one thing. So uh, it's a hugely complicated jigsaw that you're trying to build. And um, as I say, God-given talent, I'd go for all the time. And the final question from T. Sheru on Twitter uh, asks for your top five drivers you've ever seen in pure driving ability. So I think this is really focusing on what they do behind the wheel, not the off-track stuff, but just those with that great ability. Well, I mean, one driver that springs to mind that uh, you work with is Tommy Byrne in terms of that category. I don't know whether he springs to mind in your top five. Tommy was exceptionally talented and just uh, amazing that he never made it further in his career. You know, at the end of the day, I have seen a very limited amount of drivers. And for me to come, and I mean, I've been involved in this nearly nearly 50 years now, 47 years. Um, so, you know, out of that 47 years, um, I've seen a, quite a huge amount of drivers, but I've not seen them all. But, you know, going through all that sort of stuff, the, the names that come to, to the top are obviously the successful guys. You know, the Michael Schumacher, the Lewis Hamilton, Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost, Jackie Stewart. You know, they're all they're all up there with it. I never I never seen Fangio drive. I never seen Albert Scarry drive. I never was involved with either of them. But you know, their success rate is high. So you've got to give them all a pat on the back and say they're all pretty good people. Um, they're all pretty good drivers. But I, I I don't think my top five drivers would only be drivers that I was involved with, which I loved working with Rubens Barrichello, um, Roberto Moreno. Tommy was a great guy, but not in Formula One. I you know. I didn't work with him in Formula One. Michael Schumacher, because of doing that one race weekend with him, I obviously followed him quite closely. Um, so th that's that would be my judgments. But the times they are changing, and and what you got to remember was that, as I say, fifty years ago, if you overdid it, you could pay the ultimate price very quickly. Thirty years ago, if you overdid it, you could hurt yourself pretty much. Um, currently, it's it's not like that. It's all focused now on, on just pure speed. And safety is there. Safety is second to none right now with these cars. Um, so that clouds some of the fact that, you know, the Jim Clarks of the past, you know, it's about risk and reward. And um, today, sometimes the drivers that we see now take too much risk um, that really back 30, 40, 50 years ago, you'd have paid a big price for. I guess it's one of those things, isn't it, that the if you transplanted any of the, the great drivers into a different era, they'd probably adapt to the challenges of the time, wouldn't they, and uh, and, and take it on. But you can't, you can't kind of, everyone's a, a product of their era and their, and their context, I guess, isn't it? So you can't really, uh, you, you can't put Lewis Hamilton in a time machine because he, he, if he jumped into a Mercedes in 1955, you'd think it was ridiculous. But if Lewis Hamilton was born at the same time as Fangio or someone, it would be perfectly perfectly normal for him, and I'm sure he'd, he'd master it. 
It's all it's all to do with you know your upbringing. You come through a certain era, um, you know, and, and coming through the karting and relationship and all the little smaller formulas and stuff. They're all current stuff. There's no, it's not as though there's you know a massive change. The, the era for me, the era is the sort of through the sixties, I suppose I would say was good for adaption because that was when we were coming from you know hand built in the garage race cars, I suppose to to fairly professional race cars. Wings were starting to appear, engines were getting better, tires were getting better, brakes were getting better. You know, everything was getting different. It was a, a wide scale of change from 1960, I suppose, to 1970. And that's the one area where I think you could look at drivers and say, you know, they were the people that adapted, done a good job through that through that wide area. You know, the Jackie Stewart's, Jim Clark, you know, Sterling Moss, all that lot. They're pretty, pretty much up there with... Uh, was the best um, at the time of adaption, I suppose you might call it. I always think it's fascinating that Jack Brabham made his debut in 55 and had his last race in 1970. What a difference there is in the, uh, the technology in, the, in, in that 15 years. Well, that's something that I always say about me as well. You know, the, the, the change in, in Formula One cars from 1973 to when I did my last Grand Prix as a engineering-wise, uh, 2003, um, that, that period... Just, you know, it was just horrendous, you know. It's just such a big change in cars from riveting together an aluminium chassis, you know, and, and fixing it and putting panels on it at a race meeting and all sorts of stuff to, you know, ending up with what we have with carbon fibre chassis and, you know, massive, massively sophisticated pieces of kit. Um, and even from then to 2003 to now, it's just a massive change. But it's just nice to see that era and have a look at it. Yep, and the whole the whole debate about who is the who is the greatest will continue to go on as for as long as Grand Prix rating exists, and that's always going to be a big factor, isn't it? How much things have changed. I imagine forty years down the line, people look back at today and say, "Oh, it was different when Hamilton was doing it for uh, for whatever reason." But thanks very much for your insight on on drivers, Gary. Very much appreciated. Obviously, we'll be back next week with more from Gary on on this podcast. And if you head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen, you'll be able to read all sorts of stuff from Gary on the site and from the rest of the team. Thanks very much for listening, and join us next week for more from Gary. Mm-hmm.